As we, as we turn now to the word, I'm going to ask you all to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 12, page 767 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to read through this text as a whole, uh, verses 22 through 37, as we get started. Page 767 in the Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 12. Start in verse 22. Follow along with me as we read. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan is cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom... Do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. And as we consider it now, give us reverence for it. Give us attentiveness to hear what you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, last Sunday, we looked at the verses uh, just before our text this morning, verses 15 through 21, and we considered Jesus as the chosen servant of God and who came in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy given some 700 years before. We considered Jesus as the one who brings justice to the earth, true justice, biblical justice, 
And we saw how that is a frightening thing to sinners. And yet for those who have been justified by faith, those who have been pardoned and whose sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus, we can look forward to Jesus's return and his bringing of justice as good news, as something glorious, something we we hope for. And, And we thought about how Jesus comes to bring justice, but he comes the first time. He came the first time as a suffering servant, as in gentleness, bringing tender mercy. How We thought about how he would not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking wick. We thought about how he is the one who takes the devil's throwaways and reclaims them, making them his own, making us his own redeeming us from sin at great cost to himself. And Jesus, for the most part, went about his work quietly. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't in the center of Rome causing quite a stir. He, he spent a lot of his time in the wilderness, in the back country, in the small towns and villages. He wasn't running publicity campaigns. He was here not first and foremost to, to debate but to heal and to redeem and to save. And so we, we read that he, didn't, he wouldn't quarrel and, and cry aloud in the streets. But that isn't to say that he wouldn't sometimes defend the truth and speak the truth. And as he went through this world and confronted evil, that evil fought back. And Jesus spoke truth in response. He exposed the errors of those who opposed him. And that's what we see in our text this morning. We've, we've seen as we've gone through Matthew that despite all the good Jesus did, despite all the evidence that he truly is God in the flesh, that he truly was the Messiah sent in fulfillment of prophecy, despite all of the signs, for all of that, people still took offense at him. They still rejected him. People still doubted. I mean, even here, as people are, are amazed and they're saying, can this be the son of David? It's like, how, don't you know by now? Maybe they struggled with the fact that he was from, where is he from? Nazareth? What good can come out of that town? Wait, Jesus, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't trained in the schools of the Pharisees? Where's this guy's degrees? Where's his PhD? Where's his army? But as we, as, as we see, people were taking offense at Jesus as well. Not only were they indifferent, but the Pharisees were taking offense at him. And they were actually seeking to destroy him in spite of all the good he was doing. Verse 14, a few lines up, same chapter here. It says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They're out for blood. So Jesus, as we go through this text, we're going to see how he, he teaches us some things about, about the kingdom, about his kingdom, about the evil that he confronts, and even about our own selves. If, if you're looking for kind of a, a basic flow of what's going on, we're going to have kind of four movements this morning. 
as we work our way through this passage. So if you're taking notes, here's kind of the the skeleton, the structure of this message. First of all, we're going to see an undeniable miracle, an undeniable miracle. Second, an unreasonable accusation, an unreasonable accusation. Third, a reasonable response, a reasonable response. And then fourthly, a word of warning, a word of warning. So first of all, let's look at verse 22 and let's consider an undeniable miracle. I'm going to read that verse again. Verse 22, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now, according to Miriam Webster's dictionary, a miracle is defined as an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. An extraordinary event manifesting or showing divine intervention, divine interruption in human affairs in the normal course of events. Now, we often use the term miracle a bit more loosely. We speak of maybe an amazing comeback victory in in sports as a miracle. So if you're a Razorback fan, uh, there's the miracle on Markham. That, that, that incredible comeback victory over LSU back in 2002. You know, there's just a few seconds left. Quarterback Matt Jones, he led the team down the field. He, he threw the ball. And it seemed like half of the LSU defense was there to intercept it. But one Razorback player in the back of the end zone, the Corey Birmingham, came down with the winning touchdown pass. And the crowd went wild. Razorback fans still talk about it to this day, the miracle on Markham. Those of you from Connecticut are like getting an education here on the ways of Arkansans. Um, but the point is we, we use the term miracle kind of loosely. And we're amazed. We're, we're easily impressed but can you imagine how people would have been talking about some of the miracles that Jesus did? I mean, here's this person. Here's this one who was blind. Here's somebody who couldn't speak. And Jesus didn't sign him up for speech therapy. Jesus didn't uh, take him away in a back room for several hours and, and do some kind of operation on his eyes. People were amazed. They, they saw what he did, and they, they were amazed. They were saying, who is this? Could this really be the Messiah? Now, people in our day, we often, we often have a hard time with miracles. As even, even within the church, you'll meet people that seem to have a hard time believing in the miracles that we see in Scripture. You know, we, we live in, a, in an age when a lot of people assume that there is no supernatural, that there is no God. By blind faith, they believe that everything must be explained with science and according to the laws of nature. They believe that by blind faith, mind you. But the people that really baffle me are those who claim to believe in God, And yet they have a hard time believing in the miracles of the Bible. 
That's just inconsistent. They, they get kind of embarrassed about them. They, they shy away from talking about them. And I, and I think, why? I mean, you believe in a supernatural being and you don't, you have a hard time thinking you could do supernatural things. So if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he is God incarnate, if he's empowered by the very spirit of God, as the Isaiah passage just a few verses earlier had prophesied, then it's, it's perfectly reasonable that he'd be able to do some pretty out of the ordinary things, some divine things, some things that couldn't just be explained by natural causes, things that could only be explained by supernatural causes. And that's what we see here. There's a person who is under the power of an evil spirit, verse 22 tells us, paranormally oppressed by an evil presence. And not only that, but you know, perhaps as a result of that, this person is blind and unable to speak. I love what Matthew Henry said. He said he could neither help himself nor speak to others to help him. This poor person was in a bad place. Thankfully, he had people who cared enough about him to bring him to Jesus. Maybe that's been your story. Maybe, maybe you had someone who cared enough about you to not give up on you, to get close enough to you to, to bring you to the Savior. But right there, right before their eyes, Jesus heals this person. Blindness to sight, inability to speak, able to speak. And what's the result? The people were amazed. And notice, they didn't say, you know, what kind of secrets of medicine does this man know? What kind of medical technology has, has he uncovered? Maybe he can teach us, you know, how he operates on the eye. He can teach us how he how he, you know, his methods of speech therapy. No, they weren't talking about a procedure he did. They were talking about the person he was. They realized that the power wasn't in the, the medical techniques he knew. The power was in him. And not even Jesus's harshest critics tried denying that this miracle happened. Unlike the skeptics of today who try to you know, grasp for explanations to explain away miracles, you know. Maybe when Jesus was walking on the water, uh, he, was, he was stepping on these, these rocks that were just under the surface of the waves. Now that, that, and then it was an illusion. They thought he was walking on the water. It's crazy what people will come up with, right? But the eyewitnesses, those who were there, they, they knew better. They, they couldn't deny that something very out of the ordinary just happened, something that couldn't be explained by science. This was an undeniable miracle. Even those who hated Jesus, who wanted to discredit Jesus, they didn't try to say, you know, Jesus is just a clever illusionist. How could they? Here's a person who was blind and now he sees. How could they? They didn't try discrediting the miracle they tried discrediting the source of the power to do the miracle. They tried to, to question Jesus' source of power because they couldn't question the power itself. And they made the case that he was actually an agent of the prince of demons. 
This brings us to our second movement. We've, this, we looked at the undeniable miracle. Now let's consider an unreasonable accusation. Because this is just what it is. It's an unreasonable, irrational accusation. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So we've already seen that the Pharisees were a sect of strict religious Jews. We've seen their growing hostility to Jesus. You know, Jesus' true righteousness, it exposed their surface level, superficial ritualism. Jesus, this unschooled, poor, often homeless rabbi, he knew God's law better than these scholars did. And he was making them look bad. And the crowds were following him. And the Pharisees seemed to be getting jealous. We read in another place of the Pharisees that they were those who loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And the people were seriously beginning to entertain the idea that Jesus may be the Messiah. Could he be? I mean, they're they're slow to catch on, but they're at least entertaining the possibility. But when the Pharisees heard it, when they heard it, Matthew Henry says that those who bind up their happiness in the praise and applause of men expose themselves to a perpetual uneasiness upon every favorable word that is said of any other. Whenever whenever someone is, is speaking well of another person, does that make you uncomfortable? And so what do the Pharisees do? They, they, don't, they can't deny his power, so they question the source. But notice that they don't give any proof. They just make this accusation. They just kind of throw it out there. And they don't give any reasons. There's no evidence that they provide. They're just feeling desperate. They're running out of explanations. But they don't want to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. And the only other explanation is that he must be from the dark side. He must be getting his power from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They, they invent this conspiracy theory. You know, maybe what's happening, Jesus and the devil made a deal, and uh, Jesus is trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. He's trying to fool everyone. And so, so Satan has given Jesus this power to, to cast out demons, to to throw out his minions from the people they were oppressing. But this is really a reach. It's very unreasonable. And this becomes even clearer from Jesus's response. This is our our third movement. Look at verses 25 through 29, as we consider thirdly, a reasonable response, a reasonable response. Jesus, uh, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if Satan, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods 
unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus' first appeal here is to common sense. He's saying, listen, everybody knows that united we stand, divided we fall. We all tend to know by, by common sense, you know, every, every general that's worth its salt, uh, he, he's going to realize that if he can divide the enemy, he's got a good chance of winning the battle. Divide and conquer has been the slogan of many a successful general. Satan, though he's evil, Jesus is saying, look, Satan's not stupid. Yes, he's malicious. Yes, he's evil. But he's not so dumb that he's going to just allow infighting within his ranks and, and turn on his own, his own workers, his own evil spirits. He's cunning and smart. I mean, he's, he's been around a long time. Jesus is saying that if Satan and his demons are fighting against one another, if there's infighting within the kingdom of darkness, well, then his kingdom cannot stand. It's basically defeated. But the people of this time, they knew too well that the kingdom of darkness was alive and well. Jesus is just, he's pointing out, Pharisees, your case makes no sense. But also he, he goes on in verse 27 and he says that if, if he casts out demons by the power of the evil one, couldn't the same charge be leveled against their own sons, their own, uh, if, if not literal sons here, their own students those of their own party who also cast out demons. Now, I might throw us a little bit, but actually Jesus, he wasn't the only person who cast out evil spirits. And even the Bible shows us this. God sometimes allowed others to cast out evil spirits. Luke 9 tells, tells us of the disciples coming to Jesus and bringing it to his attention that they saw someone else casting out demons in Jesus's name. Uh, and their only problem with that was that this person, he, he's not following with us. You know, he's not part of our, our group. What set Jesus apart wasn't just the fact that he cast out demons. It was the way he did it. He, he cast out demons, not in the name of someone else. He did it in his own name, in his own authority. With no... Uh, with, with a word, he cast out demons, not, not with some elaborate ritual. The demons trembled in fear before him, and they, they begged mercy at him, uh, for him. He didn't tremble in fear before them and beg God to please come through and cast out these demons for me. It was, it was quite the opposite. Jesus's point here with the Pharisees is that if, if you're going to accuse me of this, couldn't the same accusation be made against your own sons? And if so, why are you singling me out if you're not prepared to entertain the same idea about them? So he's, he's exposing their inconsistency. But next, look at verse 29. He says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus points out using this image of a strong man being tied up so that his house can be robbed, that if Satan's house is being robbed, so to speak, 
then if Satan is being plundered, which he's saying, this is obviously what's happening right now. Satan is being plundered. Then there must have been a power stronger than Satan to restrain him so that this could be done. The only other option biblically, the only other spiritual power that is stronger than Satan and opposed to Satan is the power of God. Satan's captives are being set free right and left. Evil and demented being restored to a right mind, made sane and civil and good. Demons are on the run. They're being silenced, gagged. They're being tossed out like rowdy drunks are tossed out into the back alley by the bouncer. Satan's kingdom is being ransacked. His chains are being snapped. The captives are being set free. And Jesus is saying, you you think Satan's going to let all this happen on his watch? He's been tied up. He's been restrained. Satan has been bound by someone stronger. And Jesus concludes that if it is by the power of the spirit of God, which is the only other logical option that he's doing these things, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the term there in verse 28. If you look there and he says the kingdom of God has come upon you. That that word could also be translated to, to overtake you. The kingdom of God has caught up with you. It's here whether you're ready for it or not. Are you recognizing that? Now, before we move on from this, I just want to take this opportunity to examine how we think about the kingdom of God and how God is victorious in this world. Let me tell a story of two soldiers in the army of a, of a king. And they were part of this army and that was sent to drive out some invaders who had fortified themselves in their territory. And, uh, you know, they're sending out their raiding bands, but they had this, this kind of central stronghold surrounded by trenches and bulwarks. And in the center was this massive fort with a tower looming up over the horizon and their flag flying defiantly in the morning breeze. And as the soldiers advanced on the king's order, as they charged the enemy, you know, they, they charged towards the trenches and the king, the king had given them instructions, you know, drive the troops out of the trenches first, break down those bulwarks, work your way towards the tower. But as the battle went on, one of the soldiers kept looking at the enemy flag, he kept looking up and, and he, he would see the enemy flag up there flying in the wind And in his mind, he began to equate victory very, he began to define it very narrowly. Victory means that the flag has come down. And as the enemy flag continued to fly in the wind, the longer it blew in the wind, he began to get discouraged. So that not only was he fighting the enemies in the trenches, but he was fighting his own discouragements that the enemy flag was still flying. Now, the first soldier tried to encourage his his companion, and he, he, he kept telling him, listen, like, don't you see, we are winning. Victory is happening. Yes, the flag hasn't come down yet, but look, the enemy is on the run. We're clearing out the trenches. The bulwarks are being burnt. We're, we're winning. Don't you see it? But his friend just kept looking at the flag and saying, 
we're, we're just, look, at, look at that. They've, they've got the stronghold. They've got the tower. Their flag is still flying. You know, what are we doing down here in these trenches? We should, we should just skip all this. This is just a waste of time. We just need to go take that flag down. But that's not what the king had ordered them to do. They kept on fighting. But the, 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 that second soldier who kept glancing up at the enemy flag, he fought on in a discouraged way, disheartened, because it took them quite a while to get to the flag. But the first soldier, he was recognizing the king's plan. He was, he was seeing that each step of the way, they were going merely from victory to more victory. And he fought on with, with hope in his heart, encouraged. He saw the progress of victory. Brothers and sisters, all that to say, I tell that story to, tell, to show us that it's important how we define victory. We don't want to define victory so narrowly because if we define it too narrowly, we may fight on, but we may do so like that second soldier in a discouraged way. We, what I mean to say is that we may equate victory with you know, having a Christian in government, with changing the laws of the land. We may equate victory with having uh, people who love God in the highest places of the society. And we may think, we may wrongly think that until that happens, we are defeated and we're wasting our time. And we may be tempted to, to bypass the less exciting work of discipling people one by one and try to, try to storm the tower and take the flag down. But according to Jesus, his kingdom was already triumphing, even here in this passage. And it was triumphing. Satan was bound and his, his house was being plundered. Even while there was a pagan emperor in Rome ruling the empire. Even while the, the Jewish leaders were corrupt and wicked. And, and Jesus wasn't saying, hey, once we get them out of there, then, then we can be victorious. He's saying, no, listen. I'm already winning. I'm already triumphing. Yes, one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But brothers and sisters, even now, Christ is triumphing. He is winning. One commentator notes that, that Jesus declares the arrival of the kingdom, not through amassing an army, but through casting out demons and healing the sick. So according to Jesus, it was he, his kingdom was triumphing over Satan already. Again, even while, even while there were pagans on the throne. So, brothers and sisters, let's not, let's not be, be defining victory too narrowly. One day, Christ will visibly subdue every kingdom and power that exalts itself against him and his people. I think the scriptures give us Ample evidence, though, that we can expect opposition and persecution even to varying levels until then. Over and over again in scripture, we're called to endure patiently as sojourners and exiles in a hostile world. And our hope, what, what the scriptures tell us to look forward to as we suffer, as we're persecuted, 
it doesn't tell us to, to look forward to that golden age prior to Christ's return when, you know, the whole world is Christianized and everybody loves Jesus. But the, the scriptures actually point us to hope in Christ's return. And it gives us the impression until then, we're going to have a fight on our hands. And we can expect to be opposed and even persecuted. We may expect even to, to die as martyrs. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Where, where am I getting this? Look at, well, listen to James 5, 7. In, in that verse, James doesn't encourage suffering Christians to be patient and endure until the church gains the levers of legislation, until the culture is taken back, until we get Christian leaders in government and establish a Christian theocracy in the world. That's not what he tells them to be patient and endure until. He says, be patient and endure until the coming of the Lord. That's what he wants them to look forward to. That's when you can expect deliverance from your suffering, Christian, until his coming. Be patient and endure and do his work. And yes, when we can, change some laws, get Christian leaders in office. But just because the flag is, of the enemy is still flying doesn't mean we're losing. The church triumphing in this world does not necessitate a worldwide Christian kingdom, Christian government, Christian theocracy in a physical sense before Christ's second coming. I would argue that the church is victorious even as its martyrs are dying, even as the forces of evil are hurling everything they've got against us and trying to stamp out the Christian faith, as evil men are going from bad to worse, as, as killing and, and persecution and outlawing of Christianity is happening, the, the church can still be victorious in the midst of all of that. Because whatever the enemy throws at us, all of their weapons are shown to be utterly powerless against the kingdom of God. It's all to no avail. They throw the best they've got at us, and it still can't overcome the kingdom of God. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let them come. Let them fight us with legislation. Let them fight us with violent force. All of their weapons will prove powerless against us because we have the Lord on our side. And one day, as all of their weaponry against Christ and Christ's people has proved worthless, less than worthless, they will be forced to lay down their arms and bow the knee before the, before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For he will come to avenge his people, to judge the world, and to bring in its kingdom in its fullness. But in the meantime, as, as Revelation 12 says, that we overcome the evil one through the blood of the lamb, through the word of his testimony. Why? Because we love not our lives even to the death. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Well, Jesus has given a, a reasonable response to the Pharisees. The things prophesied long before 
were taking place. All the evidence was pointing to him as the Messiah. But still, what was, why were they so unreasonably accusing him? Were they just a special kind of ignorant and, and stupid? What was their problem? Was it a low IQ? That's not where Jesus goes. Their problem wasn't a mental deficiency. It was a moral deficiency. Jesus is very clear with them that they were, in fact, evil. That is why they were so unreasonably accusing him. And this brings us to our final point, point number four, a word of warning. A word of warning. And Jesus says that, first of all, whoever is not with me is against me. He says, listen, there's no neutrality. He says, he gives them a warning about the unpardonable sin. Now, there's some things in this section of verses I'm going to come back to next week to dig into a little bit deeper. But I want, to, I want us to just kind of see the big picture of what he's doing here in verses 33, verse 30 through 37. He's, he's turning the, the spotlight on their hearts. And he's saying, the reason why you're so unreasonably accusing me is because your hearts are so unrighteous. Let me say that again. I think that's the, the main point of, of, this, of these verses is the reason they're so unreasonably accusing him is that their hearts are so unrighteous. He, he says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever uh, been to a party and you, know, you got one of those uh, big orange like Gatorade coolers and maybe you, you walked up to it to get your drink and... Whatever came out into your cup, it wasn't quite what you were expecting to get. Maybe you were expecting a nice cold glass of sweet tea, and instead, that Yankee tea was in there, that, that unsweet stuff. I'll confession, I actually like unsweet tea, so don't hold that against me. Um, but maybe someone got the labels mixed up. Maybe they put like the, the sweet label on the unsweet jug. You know, what matters most is not the label. It's what's inside that cooler. And eventually, what's inside it is going to come out. When the buttons are pushed, when that spigot is turned on, it's going to come out. What is inside will come out. And the same is true of our hearts and our mouths. What is inside of us? You want to know what's inside of you? You want to know what's in your heart? Record your words. Um, maybe like put a voice recorder on and listen to yourself talk for a few hours. What, do you, what, what comes out of your mouth? You know, that's not just, oh, it was a little slip of the tongue. I didn't mean to say that. No, it's actually in those moments when there's a little slip of the tongue, when we're just unguarded, when there's no filter. That's, that, what, that's what shows what's, what's really within us, what's really in our, in our hearts. So if we're dishonest inside, if we don't love the truth, then we're not going to love the truth in action when we speak. If inside we're filled with anger and malice, our words will tear others down and corrode relationships. What matters most is not the label we claim, but who we really are on the inside. We may wear the label of Christian and the label of loving God, but that label becomes meaningless. As, as meaningless as, you know, a sweet tea label on an unsweet tea cooler, if our words are bitter. And malicious. So the lesson here is that we can check our hearts by 
examining our words. Uh, Also notice how direct Jesus is here. He's so direct with the Pharisees. He just calls them what they are. He says, you are evil. Now he's not trying to just insult them just to be mean. They're, They're walking on thin ice. And in order to shake them from their (laughs) to help them realize the seriousness of what they're doing, the danger that they're in, he just cuts straight to the point. People opposed Jesus so unreasonably because their hearts were so unrighteous. In this passage, Jesus confronts two great evils. He confronts the kingdom of darkness but, the, but in that kingdom of darkness, the two great evils he confronts are demons and us. Demons, the demonic forces of Satan, and evil, fallen human beings. Listen, our, our problem is not just that we're bound by the evil one, that we're, you know, captivated by Satan and he's making us do bad things. Our problem is also us, our own human hearts. Apart from the grace of God, we are evil. These Pharisees are not unique in this. They were just, they were just farther along the path than we would have been. But thanks be to God, he did not utterly condemn both fallen angels and fallen humans. He didn't damn us with the demons as we fully deserve. In his mercy, God decided to show mercy and grace to human beings. He could have have decided to show mercy to to the fallen angels instead and left us to perish. But instead, he chose to forgive and to save human beings. He came to deliver those of the second race of evil fallen beings, us, at great cost to himself. And that, my friends, is the gospel, which is where we'll close this morning. That Jesus Christ came not just to, not just to rout the forces of the evil one, not just to judge not just to plunder Satan's house. He came to save. He came to to plunder us from Satan to redeem us. But that, that work would have a cost, and it would cost Jesus going to the cross of Calvary to die there to redeem us from our sins, to take on himself the punishment that we deserved. So that all who would repent of their sins and believe upon him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We fully deserve to be in hell under the wrath of God with the worst demons that are out there. That's our rightful place. But instead, Jesus Christ took our place by suffering on the cross He was punished for us, the just for the unjust. And he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And now he gives forgiveness and he calls all to repent and to believe upon him. Have you done that this morning? Have you repented of your sins? Have you come to Christ? Have you believed upon him?
Listen, if you have any questions about that, I'd encourage you, don't, don't just let those questions bother you and don't just let those stay in the back of your mind. Talk to a church member. Talk to me. I'd love to help you know for sure that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So the whole book of 1 John is about, that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus came not just to destroy us. He came to save. Thank God for his grace. Let's pray. Lord God, what we have thought about this morning is, is humbling, just the reality that our hearts are so evil. Lord, the, the Pharisees, they weren't just unique, Lord. It could have been us apart from your grace. Lord God, we, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that though there was nothing in us to love, you set your love upon us anyways. You know what is there, and you chose to love us, to give yourself for us. Christ gave himself for our sins. Lord, what a, what a sentence that is. Help us, Lord, help us to treasure our Savior this week. Help us to, to walk in gratitude to what he's, for what he's done for us. I pray that if there are any in this room who do not know this salvation, who are still walking around with a weight of condemnation over them, maybe that they don't, don't even realize, still living each day, storing up wrath for the day of wrath, pray that they would repent that they would see before it is too late, that they would come and be forgiven. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.